Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition. Today is Monday, December December the 13th. We hope you had a fabulous weekend. I'm Kevin McDonald, your host and executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. A lot of great things in store for you on this, this episode. We're going to dive right in, though, with Our Land, which is our environmental series. And this month, we are talking about urban wildlife. We all know that the occasional raccoon or skunk may come to pay a visit to your trash dumpster. But do you are you really aware of how many different kinds of species are lurking around in the shadows. And I don't say lurking in a bad way because this wildlife is crucial to our environment and our habitats. And we caught up recently with a UNM grad student who studies uh, these animals and how they make their uh, lives work in urban settings and how they play a crucial element and role in all of our habitats. So. This is our our land for this month, all about urban wildlife and the urbanization of our wildlife. And we encourage you, if you get a chance, to check out our social media pages to catch some snapshots that people have submitted to us of all these great creatures. Such a variety here in Albuquerque, especially. It's really fun to take a look at that. We've also got an interactive map there where you can upload your own uh, spots on the map and your own images of of animals. So uh, interactive way for you to get involved and well, encourage you to do that. But for now, here is Heartland. I'm Laura Paskus. On this month's Our Land, we talk about the creatures we inhabit our cities with. I spoke with University of New Mexico graduate student Zoe Rossman. She's an urban wildlife ecologist and she shares some of her research. We talk about who's living here and why they matter. And we're really happy that in this show we feature video and images from around New Mexico shared by our friends and viewers. Welcome, Zoe. You're a graduate student in the biology department at UNM. Yes, I am. Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining me. So you study carnivores or urban wildlife. Tell me a little bit about what your research is about. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an urban wildlife ecologist. So a lot of my previous work was actually up in Chicago, but lately I've moved back to focus on Albuquerque. And um, basically my research is about how and why the urban mammals that we see in our city are existing here and doing so well here. You know, and, and we know that there's a lot of urban wildlife all across the city, which, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, but we don't really have many answers about where those animals are actually occurring or why they are where they are. As humans, I feel like we often think of ourselves as separate from nature, like I live here, you animals (laughs) live over there. But Albuquerque, which is crazy because we're the largest city in New Mexico, there is wildlife all over the place. And like, for instance, I was super surprised to hear that there are foxes in Knob Hill. Oh yeah. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about what's out there and what you hear from people is out there? Yeah, of course. And first, I think that's an excellent point because the the idea that cities are separate from nature and that only animals that we've, you know, brought in or cultivated are allowed to be here or should be here is is just so bizarre because there's been urban wildlife for as long as there's been urban, you know, for as long as there've been cities. And, you know, we had 
urban animals in you know Aztec cities and in Chaco Canyon like a thousand years ago right and so this is not new <laughs> by any means to this area but as far as what's here you know yeah there's foxes in Knob Hill I had I know you mentioned that to me I had a friend um, a few months back who saw one in Knob Hill also I ran into a woman whose friend had a family of gray foxes on their ring camera on like Eubank and Wantabo Definitely foxes, coyotes, um, raccoons and skunks, which you might expect, you know, you hear about those kind of animals, you know, in cities a lot. Uh, in the bosque, we've got porcupines and beavers and muskrat um, and, and all sorts of other little critters. Uh, let's see, mountain lions and bears occasionally will come into the city, although uh, they probably, they, will, they obviously don't live here all the time. There's not really enough habitat to support them and you do occasionally get like the rarer animals like a ringtail being sighted. Uh, bobcats are pretty common. So we've got, you know, we've got the whole spectrum. Um, we've also, I know you're one of the lucky few people that's seen javelina uh, in Albuquerque, which is really exciting because their range is moving north. So, I mean, I've only ever seen them south of Albuquerque, but lately I think there've been three or four sightings uh, in town, which will be really interesting to see how if that continues and how that impacts things. But we have the whole spectrum and I'm a mammologist, so of course I'm like focusing on these medium to large size urban mammals, but of course we've got tons of birds and reptiles and amphibians and insects um, all throughout the city too. So what is their presence? Like for example, um, the foxes or coyotes or bobcats, what is their presence in the city say about us? And maybe what does it say about them? That's a great question. So yes, not all animals do well in cities. And there are plenty of animals that have been uh, harmed by urbanization, um, particularly large carnivores, species like wolves and bears and mountain lions even. Although we do have, you know, there are mountain lions living right in the LA suburbs. But uh, there are plenty of species that could never live full time in a city. And I think that's part of what draws me so much to the animals who can, <laughs> because it's, it's really cool that there are functioning uh, animal communities all around us. So for, as to what it says about them, there are characteristics that make certain uh, urban animals successful. So for mammals, it's things like having a really general diet you know, if you're a coyote, if you're a wolf, you have to eat meat, right? You can't go around just eating whatever you want. If you're a coyote, you can eat, sure, you can eat rodents, but you can also eat berries or cat food or people's trash. I mean, right now, all the coyote scat I see is just full of prickly pear fruit, just like chock full of prickly pear, like that thing. But uh, yeah, so there are things like being flexible, you know, being able to shift your activity patterns. So coyotes down, if you go down to Bosque del Apache or up to Bias Caldera, you can see coyotes out in the middle of the day. And that doesn't really happen in cities. Um, and so there, there are sort of different characteristics that make these urban mammals successful. In terms of what it says about us, it's hard to say because you find urban mammals in cities all around the world. They're in the biggest metropolitan areas in the US and down to smaller cities. Obviously, I think it's really cool that we have these urban mammals here in Albuquerque, but it's not a surprise because they've been here for a long time and they're not gonna go anywhere. <laughs> and so I think the key is really sort of 
learning about them because not all people know, you know? I mean, it's, it's really, really common not to know that we have coyotes or foxes in Knob Hill because you don't see them and that's largely because they don't really want too much to do with us most of the time. <laughs> so it's, which is, which is a good thing probably for us and for them. Um, but I think it's cool that we do have them. So one of the things, like in my neighborhood, I, I see coyotes and my dog got sprayed by a skunk in the backyard. So clearly we have skunks. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen raccoons like peeking out of the drainage uh, gutters on the side of the road. Like, and I'm always like, I always want to find them. Like, where do they <laughs> sleep? Where do they, like, where do they make their homes? Yeah, so they, it really depends on the animal, right? So if you take a porcupine, for instance, which I can see, you know, you can see pretty commonly if you're walking in the bosque and looking up, especially now that the cotton ones are starting to lose their leaves. Um, but an animal like a porcupine, it needs that habitat, right? They sleep in the cottonwoods during the day and they eat the vegetation that's, that's in the bosque at night. Um, but it might not do so well if you dropped it in the middle of Knob Hill, right? Whereas an animal like a coyote or a fox or a skunk or a raccoon, they can often either exist entirely in smaller areas of habitat or sort of piece that habitat together, whether it's through, you know, drainage ditches or little pieces of undeveloped lots or, you know, parks, um, things like that. So they kind of find their nooks and crannies during the daytime mostly. And then at night, you know, you can be driving in Knob Hill and see a couple coyotes playing in the middle of the street. And they're like, what are you doing here? <laughs> so um, it really depends on the animal for sure. Yeah. Are there things that cities can do to make more habitat for particular wildlife or um, to reduce conflicts between humans and wildlife, whether that's, you know, keeping your chicken coop more fortified or reducing the opportunities for drivers to hit wildlife. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, at the city level, there's a lot of research that's sort of this new field of like wildlife inclusive design. So how as cities are growing and expanding or maybe being redesigned to mitigate climate change threats, things like that. Um, how can we make sure that we're factoring wildlife and their needs into our design? But a big part of that is understanding what they need. <laughs> and some of it, you know, you might think like some of it, okay, well, the adding green spaces, things like that. Well, what kind of green spaces, right? And what plants should be there? And should they be native plants or non-native plants? Um, and for larger mammals, you know, there's still a lot that we don't know about what makes them successful in cities. And that's, I mean, luckily, lucky for me because that's sort of what I'm, what I'm uh, using my research uh, to try to find out. But I think, yeah, at the city level, trying to incorporate wildlife needs into future design is a big thing. Educating the community, I know that that, you know, I think our city does a great job of that. If you go on, you know, the city, the Department of Environmental Health's like wildlife page, they have almost every species that you can find in Albuquerque and what to do and what's normal and when to be concerned and things like that. So I think that that's really fantastic at a city level. As far as the individual level, definitely things like, you know, making sure that your pets are supervised, making sure that you're not, the, the big one is not feeding animals. And that's such a tough one because 
nobody, I mean, at least I hope, like nobody's feeding a coyote because they're like, oh, I hate coyotes so much. Like I'm gonna go out of my way to feed them, right? Uh, and I think a big part of that comes from this idea that cities and nature might be separate and that wildlife don't belong here. So if I see a coyote, it must need help. Like I better feed it because I like, I like coyotes. I want them to be here. I, I should feed them. And in reality, it does a lot more harm than good because these animals are totally fine without our intervention. They're gonna find enough, no problem. But what feeding does is it habituates those animals to us in a negative way. And so, you know, although things like animal attacks, wild animal attacks on humans are like really, really rare, almost 100% of the time they're due to humans uh, feeding wild animals. So when you think about a city of the future, like Albuquerque of the future, like are there, um, are there like bears walking through <laughs> town? Like what's like a, what's a, a good wildlife future for our city? I think a good wildlife future in Albuquerque looks a lot to the wildlife that we have here right now. And I think, you know, one of the really fascinating things about urban ecology to me, and I, I'm, I'm absolutely on board with preserving natural habitat and you know trying to uh, maintain the species that we have, ones that are threatened or endangered. But I think the really, the really cool thing about urban ecology is you get to let some of that go, and you get to focus on, like we've taken a piece of land, the land that Albuquerque sits on, and modified it beyond recognition. And there are still animals that moved in and said, yeah, hey, this is cool, this is home. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start my family here, <laughs> right? And, and I think that's amazing. And so I think urban, urban wildlife communities, urban mammal communities are, are so interesting and dynamic. And I think, you know, again, as long as there are cities, there will be urban wildlife. And there are definitely things that we can do at multiple levels, you know, to encourage that. But the coyotes that I see in Albuquerque look pretty healthy. You know, the porcupines that I've seen in Albuquerque look pretty healthy. People's photos of foxes and bobcats and raccoons and skunks, you know, the animals that we have here are really special. And I think that if we can, you know, as, as, as we move forward into the future, you know, it'll be interesting to see how much of that is maintained and how much of that changes. But the animals that end up in cities are flexible and resilient. And so I think those communities are always gonna be just really fascinating. Well, awesome, thank you so much, Zoe. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course, thank you. going to stay on the environmental side of things for a bit here. Uh, I, I know last week, this weekend, ended on a cold, stormy uh, end for most of us here in New Mexico. We've been waiting for that cold blast after these unseasonably high temperatures, but we know that this will uh, just be a blip, and we know that the dry, drought-like conditions are going to continue here uh, across the state for much of the winter. And it really got us uh, asking ourselves, uh, if you're like me, I've got plants, I've got trees uh, in my yard, in my garden that are very confused right now, even with the recent freeze, and wanted to know what I should be doing to take care of those and also how to do that in a responsible way and a conservation-minded way. 
And so we did a Facebook Live last week with our land correspondent, Laura Paskus, with a watering expert from the Water Utility Authority uh, to find out what his tips and advice are for taking care of our plants in a time when we usually think it's okay to just let them be kind of dormant. Um, Not really in that situation anymore, but there are also ways to water throughout the year and do it responsibly. So I want to bring that to you now. Here again, Laura Paskus. Hi, good morning, Carlos. Good morning, Laura. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So for everybody out there watching, this is Carlos Bustos. He is the Water Conservation Program Manager at the Albuquerque Bernalillo County Water Utility Authority, which is a mouthful, a very long um, title and organization. And we're going to talk a little bit this morning about watering and drought and conservation. So thanks for joining me, Carlos. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So um, I wanted to start just briefly, if you could just talk for a minute about like where our water comes from. When we turn on our tap and our hoses, um, I think it's always good for us to like remember where that water is actually coming from. Uh, Yes, Uh, great question to start us up. Uh, I think it's important just to recognize the value uh, of the conversation. Uh, So most of our water nowadays, it comes from southern uh, Colorado and it, it moves through a series of reservoirs, eventually making it its way to uh, the Chama and then eventually to the Rio Grande. And the other source that we got is the groundwater, uh, which uh, is right beneath, beneath our ground here, uh, our foot. And we got about 92 wells and Typically, uh, we tend to use that groundwater uh, in times of drought, uh, in times that uh, the river is 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 providing enough water, uh, we're able to supply uh, up to seventy percent of our entire uh, demand with surface water. Okay, so, so it travels so far. It, it travels far to get here, and then uh, the groundwater that we got is pretty old. So. Mm-hmm. I think it it always helps me um, to remember to like when I'm making decisions about certain things, it helps me to think about where my water is actually coming from. And so right now I'm in my living room and I'm looking out at a tree in my front yard. And this time of year, like I can usually lay off watering and kind of ease up on my water bill. but I felt like I needed to keep watering stuff through November because it was so warm and so dry. And now it's feeling that way for December. And um, you all offer these sort of winter, uh, throughout the year, um, watering recommendations. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what we're seeing this fall and winter and kind of how we should be taking care of the things we need to keep alive through this fall and winter. Uh, yes, uh, so it's really important. Uh, I'm glad you touched on trees. Uh, Albuquerque is, has lost many of its trees in the last couple of years and is, is, is happening pretty fast. Uh, 60% of the entire tree canopy that we have in the area uh, were planted back in the early 1920s, 1950s. Uh, so a lot of those trees are coming off age and it's important that we take care of the ones that we got. Uh, as of 
October 2020, uh, our area has been facing a, a pretty severe drop. Uh, the entire region, as a matter of fact, all the way from Washington State uh, to Texas has been in some form of drought for the last uh, 18 months or so. Uh, right now, the state is facing 70% uh, of the state is in severe drought conditions. And as you mentioned, the fall season, it didn't bring a lot of uh, rain. And it's looking like the winter season is not going to bring a lot of snow. So with that said, it's important that we water our landscapes, especially this winter. We want to take care of trees. Obviously, we don't water landscapes in the same way that we would water in the summer season. To give you an example, if you got an established tree in the summer season, typically we would recommend watering it at least once a week. In the winter season, you want to water it at least once a month. And the reason that's different is because in the winter, even though uh, our days are, are kind of warm, uh, well, more, nor more warm than they should be, uh, our nights are still cold and the days are still shorter. Uh, so what that means uh, for plant material is that they're losing less water when you do water them. Uh, so you're able to like uh, extend those uh, watering windows to a longer period because water tends to stay on the ground uh, longer during winter season. And if you got um, if you got some turf, if you're worried about your turf, if you're worried about uh, other plants like shrubs and, and your ground cover, uh, might as well uh, water them uh, to the same rate uh, once a month. Okay. And so as we have these like warm and dry falls and winters, like how does, does this incre like increased watering or need to water, does that affect the city's water conservation efforts? Um, yes and no. Um, you know, Albuquerque has done so great. Uh, our average monthly use has, has dropped from, uh, this is in a, in a household, it's dropped from using uh, 16 to 18,000 gallons per month to closer to 8,000 to 10,000 gallons per month. And that's across the city, across the, uh, all of our households. So with that said, uh, Albuquerque has done great in, in conserving water. And that's why we're able to like um, not be as uh, urgent in regards to our advice and how to water and when to water. And we still would like folks to be conservative in regards to how they apply that water and make sure that they're not wasting it. And we want to make sure that our landscapes are looking good, but we want to make sure that we're not uh, wasting water. And just to give you an idea, this year we've been in, in a drought, as I mentioned, and we've done a lot of public education and, and we provided almost $800,000 in rebates. And we've also done a, over 24 online classes. A, people have joined us a, from all over the city, almost 1200 people have joined us and they received a $20 rebate. And because of all these efforts, a, we've saved almost 750 million gallons in one year. And so that's incredible. Uh, that says a lot about uh, people response to drought, people response to conservation messages. And 
we we can't let our guards down, but um, we do want to encourage that landscapes look good. And as part of that, that's why we're recommending watering this year. In a typical year uh, where we will have at least a half an inch of snow every month, uh, we wouldn't be recommending uh, that you water because Mother Nature will take care of that. Yeah. So I know it's different for different households or neighborhoods or businesses, but like what are some of your best practices for people to be reducing, um, continuing to reduce water use in our homes and in our yards? And for for now in the winter, uh, we're recommending that you keep your irrigation systems off. Uh, and when you do water, you want to water uh, using a hose. And the reason we're saying is because as I mentioned, uh, nights are still pretty cold. Uh, uh, most of the nights that we're gonna face through the winter, even if, even if we're in, in the drought, uh, they're still gonna be below freezing level. So if your irrigation systems are full of water, uh, they're gonna break, they're gonna crack. And what that means is that when you turn them on, you're gonna waste a lot of water. Uh, once things start warming up, and most likely we're gonna see a warm up uh, by February, which is typically what happens uh, when we're in drought. And you wanna make sure that your ir irrigation system uh, doesn't have leaks, uh, it's not broken, you're not missing any sprinkler heads or emitters, all those are causes of water waste. And also you wanna make sure that uh, if, if, you, if you can uh, in this uh, holiday season, uh, you want to give uh, maybe smart irrigation controllers. Uh, those can help you save water up to 30%, and we got rebates for those. Uh, one of the other practices that we're encouraging folks uh, this winter season is to uh, building healthy soils. Uh, you want to you do that by adding mulch, uh, lots of organic matter. Uh, you want to add compost to your turf and your trees. And that way, um, it's going to help with retaining moisture. And those are some of the best practices that you can implement this year. Okay. And not to like belabor trees, but I'm a little bit obsessed with the trees. Like in we our all are. Yep. <laughs> I, I think like sometimes like, you know, like, you know, like running the hose on a tree, like you're just seeing that water pour out. And I know my daughter has, you know, I've yelled at her to like take shorter showers. And yet I'm mm. out there with the, you know, the hose just trying to soak this um, tree. I think that like, I think that that's something maybe that w sometimes we like hesitate to do and not knowing the right way to water. And so can you describe, like you don't just dump your hose like at the base of the tree. Can you just like describe the right way to water a tree? Yes, uh, so you wanna make sure that you're watering uh, around the tree canopy. Uh, so from, from the base or the trunk of the tree, you wanna just kind of look up and look at the extent of those branches and see how far they're going and probably your root system is going as far. So when you're watering, you wanna make sure that you're moving that hose around. And one of the uh, quick tips uh, that I like to provide is that you wanna look at your tree uh, um, diameter and if it's like about 10 inches, uh, that's about hundred gallons. You want, uh, your typical hose system is gonna put out about four gallons per minute. 
So that starts giving you an idea of how many minutes you should be watering per tree. But then also you want to make sure that you, you break down that segment so you can move that hose around so it impacts the entire tree canopy and not just one area. And that helps uh, to grow stronger trees and the stronger the, the roots, the stronger the tree. And it can withstand uh, not only drought conditions, but also freezing conditions, et cetera. So you can have a healthy tree, not only for 10 years, but through the lifespan that that tree was meant to live. Uh, most of our trees uh, tend to die off uh, earlier. And most of the costs that we find is because we're underwatering them. Okay. So if people want to find out more, um, we put the watering recommendations up, but if people want to find out about rebates or these drought workshops that you mentioned, do they just go to the Albuquerque Bernalillo County Water Utility website? You can go there. We also got a, another great website. It's dedicated to desert-friendly landscapes in, in Albuquerque and the region, and it's www.505outside.com. And you can sign up for a monthly newsletter. Uh, we got experts that uh, I, sometimes I write articles, sometimes some of my staff, uh, they write articles. And uh, most of my staff, they got at least 15 years experience in the landscape sector. So we got really good uh, tips coming up. And you can find out uh, not only about uh, how to take care of your trees, uh, but also how to water them, uh, what kind of plants are, uh, will thrive. And in your yard. And also you can find out about the watering recommendations that you mentioned. Okay. And rebates. Yes. And rebates. Yeah. yeah. Um, we got rebates for, for trees. Uh, so one of the, one of the main things, uh, if you want to have a healthy landscape, is that you want to make sure that you're choosing plants uh, that are adapted to our region. Uh, most of the annual plants that we're purchasing uh, year to year, uh, they won't last through winters. And uh, sometimes they look really bad in the summers as well. And that's because they're not meant to be here. Uh, in, in, in that website that I mentioned, you'll find a, a list of over 260 plants that includes many trees that are adapted to our region. Uh, they're meant to be in the, in the area. And you'll find that your landscape uh, it's going to look a lot better if you start choosing plants that are adapted to our region. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because a couple of summers ago, I was thinking about planting some new trees in my yard. And I just assumed like I live in the North Valley of Albuquerque and I thought mm -hmm. I love cottonwoods. I want cottonwoods in my yard. And um, the arborist who I talked to was like, no, that's not going to be a sustainable tree for for our climate. Like and so he suggested like redbud and a couple of others. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that list, we'll put a link to that list up. I think that link, that list is really important for people to be looking ahead into the decades to come. Yes, there's a great list uh, that the, uh, trying to remember the network, it's the Plant Albuquerque uh, Network. And, and through the Nature Conservancy, uh, they worked on a list, it's called the Climate Ready Tree List. And it's trees that are meant to uh, adapt and be conditioned to uh, what's we're facing and what's to come. Uh, so you want to make sure that you're choosing those type of trees. Uh, we can give you up to $100 uh, via a tree rate uh, back to your water account because we want to make sure that those trees are being watered. 
And if you, you can plant trees right now, even in the loom of as, as long as the ground has improved, uh, you can plant a tree and uh, you can apply for a tree rate via that website that I provided. And if you are planting a tree, uh, you, you need to water it more. Uh, you wanna water at least for the first two months, at least twice or three times a week just to make sure that those roots get really strong and established. And once you pass that through two months uh, period, you can default to our watering recommendations. Okay, awesome. Carlos, thanks for talking to me about trees and water this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for doing your part. I'm glad you're planting trees. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Carlos. Thank you. Going to jump back into our line opinion panel now. A reminder, uh, joining us for this discussion is former state senator Diane Snyder, along with another former state senator, Eric Riego, and regular Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group Public Relations Company. We encourage you to go back to our last episode and listen to their discussions on progress so far in the redistricting special session at the Roundhouse, as well as the PRC voting to nix a proposed merger between PM, Public Service Company of New Mexico, and Avangrid, a, a subsidiary of the Spanish uh, utility company. But in this segment, we are breaking down the governor's newly announced plan to uh, provide raises for teachers here in New Mexico and really put us above the average in the region. Wanted to find out if the line panelists think that will work, if it has a chance of getting through the regular session of the legislature in January. We know that retaining and, and attracting new teachers to, to New Mexico is especially hard right now uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic lingering, uh, conditions in classrooms super tough still. Uh, is money really going to be the thing to to stem that tide and uh, help us to keep those great teachers and find new teachers to come into the classroom. So let's find out what the line opinion panelists have to say. Here's host Gene Grant. While the legislature has its hands full with redistricting during the ongoing special session, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is looking ahead to next year. On the first of the month, the governor released a proposal to give public educators around the state a 7% pay bump. The governor's office says New Mexico teachers deserve better compensation, and the state is also trying to fill a large number of vacancies left through the pandemic, as you know. And Senator Snyder, is it about money? Is that enough to draw more teachers back into the workforce, or is it something else? Well, one, it's, I think it's more than that, mm -hmm. but I think, certainly think that is a consideration that teachers look at when they're coming into our state, mm -hmm. or young people we lose so many to out of state. Maybe our maybe our young teachers are going to our neighbors because they all at this moment mm -hmm. have higher salaries, beginning salaries. But it's not to me. It's not the only issue. I, I'm sorry. We have had some of the worst leaders for the state education department. The worst leaders in Albuquerque public schools. And and understand this is all my opinion. Mm -hmm. I just. Uh, but I look at it and I watch it closely and I'm going, why? Why would you want to be a teacher? Mm. It, it sometimes impacting young people's lives gets old mm -hmm. when you're 
So, and I also think, and this will probably get you calls about me, is I think that our teachers unions have a greater control for our legislature than they deserve. Um, and I think that, I think it would be very interesting, and I mentioned this to you earlier, mm -hmm. is if we could get a panel of recently retired teachers right. that couldn't be penalized for anything <laughs> they say mm -hmm. and just get the real story. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the way I feel about it, because I feel like everybody we hear from has got a vested interest of some kind yes. about what they're saying. Yeah, that's a good point there, Tom. You know, teachers have had to endure a whole lot through the pandemic, learning, teaching remotely, oh. risking infection. I, I, I got to ask, is this just an obvious move for the governor, given the budget surplus? Shouldn't, you know, teachers get a little something out of this? I mean, they just slog through an amazing 18 months. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's good on a couple of levels. I'm, and personally, I'm really glad to see this. On one level, yes, I think you need to provide an incentive uh, to, you know, have teachers remain engaged during this COVID timeframe. Mm -hmm. But two, I mean, the, when you think about it, the last time that teacher pay was actually addressed, it was Senate Bill 212, and I had dark hair. So, you know, it was a long time ago, and it set up a three-tier system, but yep. really that three-tier system has just been ignored That's right. for, I mean, decades. And so, you know, I'm, I am thrilled personally for teachers and the teaching profession. I don't necessarily agree with everything Senator Snyder said mm -hmm. about leadership, but, you know, when it comes to supporting teachers in the classroom, I think that's what we're all in favor of. And I think that's what uh, Governor Lujan Grisham actually accomplishes uh, with with this kind of proposal out of the out of the PED. Mm -hmm. Eric, you know, that range Tom mentioned about those three tiers, we're about 40 to 60,000 based on experience and a 7% increase would only affect teachers who didn't already receive a bump from the tier increases. So it's really not an across the board kind of thing, but I, I, you know, the chairman of the Senate Budget Writing Committee, Democrat George Munoz says this shouldn't be a problem for lawmakers in the 2022 session saying we have the money. Is he right? You know, I, I didn't agree with Senator Munoz on very many things, but I got to say that, um, you know, if you're going to put money, um, surplus money anywhere, it ought to be in in human, you know, I always say this on this show, human capital investing mm -hmm. in our kids. Mm -hmm. um, and I really do think that's what teachers are. I mean, if you, if, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're working folks like everybody else. And most of them, you know, and I'm biased, I happen to be married to an educator who was formerly an APS, now works for the state, but, you know, they, they do it for, because they, that, that's their chosen profession, mm -hmm. right? So they're going to do it regardless of the money, but it shouldn't be a vow of poverty to, to be a teacher, especially right. a new teacher. That's right. And one of the things that came out in the press around this is how, how, um, how much our teaching population is aging, right? Mm -hmm. There just isn't this new um, sort of cohort of younger teachers. It's smaller and smaller. So if you want to have, you know, you want to get um, people in college thinking about this rather than saying, well, I love teaching, you know, and I'm willing to work for 30 or $35,000 a year, 40000 now, that this actually there's a possibility that I could actually support a family, especially, right. um, you know, especially if you're, uh, you know, two teacher families. I have friends who are two teacher families and I'm, how they make it in this economy is just mm -hmm. I'm always shocked and super respectful of my friends who are you know, there's a lot of couples who are in teaching, right? They met in education and they're passionate about teaching. That's right. But they have to figure out how to get by on, you know, $80,000 a year in, in a city like Santa Fe. Right. That's very, very hard, Good you know, um, even here in Albuquerque. So I think it's great. I agree with Tom. I think if you're going to put your money anywhere, 
this is the place to put it. Mm -hmm. And I hope that it will yield some real results um, as we look back, if it does happen in a few years that we really start seeing some, uh, you know, smaller class sizes and the things that we all want to see, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Senator Snyder, I got a note from a friend that's a principal here in APS and she made a good point. She said, uh, you know, there's going to be principals upside down here very quickly, meaning principals right. are not getting, you know, teachers are actually sneaking up and principals are sort of staying the same. And other state employees are due for a raise as well as we know. Mm -hmm. I mean, should those other employees get a bump as well at the same exact time or should we just kind of chop at this one aspect at mm -hmm. a time? No, I think if we're going to do something mm -hmm. with all this kind of money, I, I, I go along with Senator Griego, mm -hmm. it should be in human resources with one caveat. Okay. We've got to have capital projects. We've got to have roads, but don't forget, our school buildings are falling apart too in many That's places. Right. That's right. When I was in the Senate, I had uh, one, uh, I had several uh, uh, schools, but I had two middle schools and one of them every year would bring me in in December and present a bill to me. And so I, and then they'd come to Santa Fe to visit. And I asked them one year, what, if you could have anything, what would you want? And I said, not pizza every day for lunch. And they said, we'd like to be able to wash our hands in our room. They were in the um, portable buildings. So I oh. said, you find out what it will cost. You get the real numbers mm -hmm. and I will give you that money in capital outlay. Mm -hmm. Well, I did. Well, guess what? I got bombarded by APS lobbyists and leaders saying you can't do that. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I looked at them and said, you got to be kidding. I can do. Anyway, we got the, I mean, these are little kids that need to wash their hands. So we have a lot of portable buildings and that's just one example of let me, capital. Let me, let me sneak that, uh, Tom in here. We're just a yeah, little tight on time. Yeah. I appreciate that anecdote because that does make the point. And, and yeah. Tom, besides a pay increase, what other incentives can the state or even a local district provide to help recruit qualified teachers? What's out there to offset staffing losses? Well, you know, wow, there's a, a, a variety of different things that districts could provide. Uh, it all, a lot of it, it goes to community uh, partnerships. Uh, I would just briefly like to kind of touch on the unintended consequence of, you know, of increasing pay, which yes. is definitely due. Mm -hmm. And that unintended consequence is, is that you're seeing the potential of government jobs, seeing a huge increase in salary, which is great. Mm -hmm. But the unintended consequence is the impact it has on the workforce and for the private sector to try and be uh, competitive. In the past, it was just the opposite, right? You know, but uh, yeah. but now there you have that potential that you know the government jobs could be really kind of outpacing or outpricing some of those in the private sector. I just think that there needs to be a balance, and uh, and I hope do, that do that's we, do we have that situation now, Tom? Because all the information I'm seeing is that teachers are going to the private side because or, I'm sorry, government oh. people are going to the private side now because they can't get a competitive salary in government. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's, I think research will support whichever argument you want to make. Gotcha. Um, I'm just saying that right now, government is seeing the most influx of cash than the private sector. And maybe there's some catch up there, but I think it's just something to keep an eye out mm -hmm. on. And that, you know, we have to make sure that, you know, there's an equal balance between government and private sector that one doesn't get too far ahead of the other. Good points there. Thanks again to our line panel, as always, this week. Be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics these guys covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. 
want to share uh, a, another recent Facebook Live that we did with you now, all about food insecurity. It's a problem year-round here in New Mexico for far too many people, one out of seven by most studies. Uh, people in New Mexico don't necessarily know where their next meal is coming from. And it's something we're probably especially heightened to during this holiday season and this time of year, colder temperatures, um, and we, we see the impacts all around us. And there are some really great groups and organizations out there that are hoping to get people that food they need uh, and some really creative approaches to it as well. So you're going to hear from a group that uh, rounds up uh, excess uh, produce from farms, uh, another one called Albuquerque Free Fridge, where there is a communal fridge. This is a mutual aid approach, a communal fridge where people can go and leave food and people can come and pick it up, really self-managed by the community. Some really innovative, great ideas for dealing with food insecurity and plenty of information in here as well about how you can get involved and help as well. You can look in our, in our show description for those links as well. So here now, toss it back to host Gene Grant. Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate it. Hey, guys, it's Wednesday. It's time for a Facebook Live. We appreciate you joining us as always. This week, I'm really pleased to talk about something that's really been sort of, it's around us here in New Mexico. We see it, we feel it, but we don't often talk about it. And that is um, food insecurity, and specifically food insecurity during the holidays, and especially tough time to have this issue in your home. So we're welcoming Erin Herring. He's the executive director of the Rio Grande Food Project. Erin Garrison, she's the executive director of Food is Free Albuquerque. Also, Ashley Remelsberg, very pleased to introduce Ashley. She's from Albuquerque Free Fridge. And also Juan Suarez from Albuquerque Free Fridge as well. I, I thank you all. Uh, Ari, as executive director for the Rio Grande Food Project, I, can we talk about terms here for a quick second just to get us going? What exactly is food insecurity when you hear about it? A lot of folks hear this term, but I'm not quite sure if we all understand fully the ramifications of it. Sure. So food insecurity is often kind of interchanged in, in just chatting about the issue with hunger and they really are different. So food insecurity is defined as limited or uncertain access to food. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's most prevalent among families um, of color and those living in food deserts or poverty. Um, food deserts actually make up a, a, a large portion of New Mexico and Albuquerque. It's kind of little known. And what it means is that it's an area where um, the residents uh, live either um, a, a mile or more from the nearest grocery store. That's true in an urban area or um, in a rural area, a food desert is um, living more than 10 miles away from a grocery store. So that's the access issue. Um, mm -hmm. So food insecurity really is about just not having regular um, dependable access to affordable um, and nutritious food. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, according to the data, uh, let me turn this to uh, Aaron, um, Executive Director for Food is Free Albuquerque. One in seven people in New Mexico are going hungry, even worse, one in five children. It, it just hurts your soul to hear that. How, how does this effort fill that gap? So we're a gleaning organization. Mm -hmm. We go out and we harvest backyard fruit trees, private orchards, 
orchards and we also work with local farmers to harvest their excess. And then we take that and we get that distributed out to other organizations um, into their distribution networks. Um, we believe that fresh food is a human right and everybody should have access to it. Um, and we, uh, we found a little niche in the food system growing right here in our backyards that we've been able to um, use and utilize mm -hmm. to share with our communities. What are, we, what are we talking about in, I'm not quite sure how your business uh, classifies these things. Is it tonnage? Is it, I mean, how, do, how do you measure how much food you're actually putting out there? So we weigh all of our harvests um, mm -hmm. and we sort it by human edible animal compost. Um, and that's how we determine it. So this year we did mm -hmm. just over 27,000 pounds of human edible food that we shared with the community. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. And somehow this food has to get to people. So let me reintroduce Ashley Ramelsberg, who's also one of our, our wonderful employees right here at New Mexico at PBS. We love having Ashley with us. And Juan Suarez, who both created Albuquerque Free Fridge. And uh, Ashley, take this one first. Obviously, what I'm saying here is there's steps to getting food in people's fridges. Where does your organization step into this process? Yeah, so um, we're a mutual aid organization that started earlier this year, um, and our goal is to help um, food insecurity in Albuquerque. So, you know, we're at 606 Broadway, which is in the South Broadway neighborhood, um, and we have a free fridge that's open 24-7. Um, it's out um, outside of uh, Juan's business here, and um, it's available so anyone can drop off food into the fridge and anyone can take food from the fridge. So we're just mm -hmm. trying to do a small part in this community um, to help people with food insecurity. Mm -hmm. Juan, I I'm curious how much food goes in and how much food goes out. This is a fascinating deal. Well, for us, it's a little trickier to keep track of it as we're really not trying to police the fridge itself but we're doing mm -hmm. weekly grocery runs with volunteers and a lot of it is community-based um, anyone can prepare meals in their kitchen properly labeled and dated and it goes in the fridge so um, we know that we have a hard time keeping the fridge stocked we put food in mm -hmm. and the food is gone within hours most of the time all, all within the community oh. How long has the fridge been operating? Ashley, if you mentioned it, I might have missed it. My fault. Yeah, um, the fridge opened in August. So in early August, August we, we, we opened. Yeah, and yeah, we shop. We usually spend about $500 a week on food. Um, so wow. we collect donations from the community, monetary donations. Um, mm -hmm. And then people also bring food. You know, people make sandwiches for the fridge. People drop off food for the fridge all the time. So... That's so fascinating. Might be the might this be the first one, Ashley, of some more to come around the city? That's the goal. Yeah. Um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we both have full-time jobs. Um, so this is our passion project. So the goal is mm -hmm. to create a network of free fridges, and we're currently working on build, building the volunteer base to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Ari Herring, let me bounce back to you for, for another over uh, sort of a broad question here. I mentioned those stats a little bit ago when you mentioned, of course. This primarily affects people of color and others. I, I'm, I'm curious about single women and particularly single women who are moms and, and where they fit into the food insecurity picture. Oh, that's a really important question. Um, so we, so the, the Rio Grande Food Project, we're a food pantry on the west side of Albuquerque and we're also an urban garden and a community hub. So 
in the 80s we were started as a food pantry and, and we um we qu quickly ev evolved to you know we realized that we're a focal point in the community and so we have to have additional services beyond food to really address the root causes of why people don't have enough money to um you know make ends meet um we see a variety of people certainly including single moms um uh, each week we carry out outdoor drive-through distributions and then we also have an indoor food pantry and during that um you know, visit by by households. We do our very best to chat with people and understand what the situation is, what they're mm -hmm. facing beyond um, food issues, how we might address those. So on site, we're able to help people enroll in really important programs like supplemental nutrition assistance. Um, so SNAP, it's it's previously known as as food stamps and TANF, mm -hmm. which is temporary assistance for needy families. Um, single moms are a, a a good portion of the clients that we serve um, okay. and also grandparents raising grandkids. Um, ah. I, so this is far more common than I ever would have known prior to doing this work. It's, it's um, at least in New Mexico, it's a really common um, household dynamic that actually the mother or father may not be in the picture and that the, the grandparents are um, raising the kids and they might be living, you know, on social security only um, and then have the responsibility for two or three children as well. Um, so that's a really tough situation. Single moms who are working one or two jobs is something that we see really often. Um, same with single dads. Um, that that you know certainly is a scenario that we bump into as well. Um, so the the families kind of come in all shapes and sizes. Um, the pandemic really exacerbated. You know any any issue that was sort of a disparity prior to COVID nineteen or um, you know some sort of um, real, you know, uh, serious um, impoverishment in, in our community prior to the pandemic just came to the forefront and became so much more obvious at a place like the Food Project. Um, and it's something that I think we need to be really cognizant of in shaping programming moving forward. We, I think, uh, you know, probably all of us in food security work we're, have to try really hard to destigmatize the issue. Um, we have to make sure that everything that we do is as you know, culturally, culturally appropriate as possible, as warm and welcoming as possible, as stigma aside as possible. We try to keep that threshold mm -hmm. really, really low because people are facing so many um, challenges. You know, the last thing we want to do is um, make it uh, a, an even more difficult situation to access that food. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that sensitivity. That's that's very close to the ground, as they say. Interesting points there. Aaron Garrison from Food is Free Albuquerque, Executive Director. Obviously, you know, your bailiwick is the city and its environs, but I'm curious if you have an opinion and others, I'm going to ask the same question. We're a big state, we're a rural state. Uh, you know, food insecurity doesn't stop at the city limits. How, how, what's the best approach for rural parts of our state when it comes to food insecurity in your view? In our view, it comes down to providing the resources to be able to grow our own food locally. Um, and mm -hmm. that can come in the form of seeds, plants, soil, trees, um, resources and learning how to grow because it's not easy to grow in our state. We are mm -hmm. very aware of that. It's not just as simple as plant a garden and everything will be okay. Um, and it's about acknowledging the abundance that's in the community and then building on that. Uh, mm -hmm. So if I have an apple tree and you have a peach tree, it means that we, ha we both have apples and we both have peach 
I appreciate that. Your signal's bouncing around a little bit, but we'll deal with it. No problem there. So um, let me ask. Really uh, focused on just education and sharing that abundance. I could imagine that's very well. No put. worries. Sorry about my signal. <laughs> that's all right. That's great. We're hanging with you. Don't you worry about it. Um, Ashley, is there a particular, you know, well, it's kind of an obvious question, but the holidays, they just pose a very particular, you know, issue in the idea of having very limited food in your house on Christmas Day, if you have children. And I have to say it again, it hurts your heart just to think about it. You know, are you prepared for a big bump in the next couple of weeks because of the holiday season? Yeah, um, so we uh, recently um, did a fundraising campaign to help get us through the holidays because we know mm. um, that it's such a big time. Um, we were fortunate enough to have a group of volunteers donate, or well, actually I should say uh, multiple groups of volunteers donate over 200 meals to the fridge um, during the Thanksgiving weekend, um, mm -hmm. which was so wonderful to see. Um, you know, and we really want to emphasize that, um, you know, we're, we're purchasing food, but anyone can also donate, whether that's making a meal, um, making a series of meals, or even if you, you know, make a turkey and you have too much, you can always, mm -hmm. um, you know, put some of that, label it and put it in the fridge and, and give those meals to other people too. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, like Juan said, it's hard for us to keep the fridge stocked, um, you know, but especially for the homeless community, it's so vital to have those fresh meals available for people so they can mm -hmm. just open up the fridge and grab a meal and, you know, hopefully be able to, to nourish themselves for that day. Mm -hmm. Juan, um, take us through, and I want the others to answer this as well, since donations, I want to get to how the best way to help is uh, as we finish here. What, what, what Ashley just made a really good point there to be able to reach in, have a meal, you don't have a way to prep it. So what's the best way to really, you know, the best way to wrap it? The, I mean, take us right through the line of what, what you feel is the best way to donate. You know, I would think along the lines of a lunch that uh, maybe your parents sent you to school with in elementary school, except right. in this scenario, every ingredient would be listed for any possible allergies and then clearly dated. So okay. in a Ziploc bag, uh, individually wrapped, you know, is the best way. And the great thing about this fridge is that it's accessible 24 hours a day. So anyone can come at any time and drop it off no matter what your schedule is. So, mm -hmm. and it's a hundred percent community uh, organized with everyone that comes along. So it's really nice to open the fridge and see it full of meals just because someone, you know, got the inkling to to do that and put it in and it's very much appreciated by the people that we see i love it one more time where is the free fridge located and where could folks uh, help it is located 606 broadway on the corner of broadway and iron southeast mm -hmm. i can picture it in my mind's eye it's a fairly easy corner to access so no excuses, guys. No excuses. Erin um, Garrison, uh, Executive Director of Food is Free Albuquerque. Again, same questions. How does one help out? And I'm thinking a little bit further, of course, than the holidays, but how does one help out your organization right now? What's the best way to do that? So of course, you can go onto our website and make donations straight onto our website. We also mm -hmm. have a store that's stocked with products made by um, New Mexican vendors. So we support local artists and vendors and small businesses so you can purchase things on there um mm -hmm. you can also 
sign up on our volunteer list to um, assist in any of the projects that we're doing. Um, we're doing a book drive with the Rio Grande Food Project next Friday, um, and oh. that will be going out soon, and people can sign up to come out and help. Um, yeah. That sounds fun. That's a great handoff to Ari as well. <laughs> Tell <laughs> us about that event. I love it. Oh, yeah. So just shout out to both of these organizations. Um, they have been incredible partners to the Food Project, and I really see this network of food security organizations as a team we are not competitors. We're all doing similar work, but differently. And we all sort of fit together like puzzle pieces. And um, so just, you know, I'm so proud of the work that both of them do. Um, we, so just a couple of things. Um, uh, thank you for asking about the holiday season because what we see families doing is make these really tough trade-offs year round. And so a household that's making like $15,000 a year is spending a third of their income on food. Whereas a household that's making 70,000 is spending, you know, 4% of their income on food. It's just totally, totally different. And so, you know, food insecurity links to issues of, of housing, um, affordability, and the cost of medicine, and all of these tough things where you're choosing, do I pay my electricity bill or do I buy food? And so the holidays just amplify that when there's pressure to, um, you know, buy more food because family gathers and buy gifts because you don't want your kids to go right. without gifts. So this is a really important time, though, you know, year round, of course, it's important. In terms of food donations, um, because we're a food pantry and we have to adhere to certain certain things because of the way that we're licensed, we, um, we, we can accept sealed um, and packaged food with nutrition labels. Um, so kind of grocery store style. Mm -hmm. And that's the exception, the, there's the exception of, of produce. So we can absolutely, um, Food is Free has been a huge, huge donor of food to the food project. And that can absolutely be like, you know, the, the fruits and, and vegetables that they gleaned um, unpackaged is, is, is totally okay. Um, cool. And we're we're located at 600 Coors Boulevard, so we're just south of I-40 on on Coors. Um, and mm -hmm. every morning, Monday through Saturday, certainly between seven and noon, we've got some staff on site, and that's a really good time to show up at 600 Coors and donate non-perishables. We try to be cognizant of the chronic health conditions that a lot of the people that we serve are facing. So you know, it's always amazing when we can get low sodium, low sugar, um, uh, you know, whole grains. Um, this is something that our, our communities have gone without for far too long and it really has health detriments. So we just don't want to perpetuate that, but all, all food is better than no food. So, um, we, you know, every donation is, is so appreciated. You know, it's in, it, this is such a reminder guys talking to all of you, how the simple power of a meal functions in our world of, as a human being. It just, it doesn't matter where you're coming from in life. If you not, if you cannot get a decent meal in your stomach daily, I don't care what it is. You're just not going to be able to kind of keep going on all cylinders. And I can't thank you guys enough for doing this. This is really very heartwarming. Uh, I think when the holiday season, especially the past couple of years we've had, it, it's been difficult. And so to know that our city is contributing really, really is heartwarming. Ari Herring, Executive Director, Rio Grande Food Project, Aaron Garrison, Executive Director, Food is Free, Albuquerque, and Ashley Remelsberg and Juan Suarez from Albuquerque Free Fridge. We can't thank you enough. Thank you so much from New Mexico PBS uh, to you guys for the holiday season for doing what you're doing. And perhaps we can, I'm, I'm very much taking a heart. This is a year round issue. So let's not make this like a special bobble for the holidays. Let's catch up with all y'all as the sort of the year gets along and there's other challenges when it comes to spring and summer Maybe we can touch base with you guys then too and uh, and really keep this cooking. 
Thank you, team. Thank you. Absolutely. Good stuff. Enjoy the weekend, guys. And we will see you Friday night at 7, of course, as usual on Channel 5.1. Got a great show coming up and some great topics, too. So we'll see you then. Thanks again. Thanks Have so a good much. Wednesday. And that'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. We thank you, as always, for listening. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald. We'll be back with much more for you again on the next episode of New Mexico in Focus. Until then, stay up to date with us with everything with the show on any of our social media channels, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. Just search for New Mexico in Focus. And you can also head to our website at newmexicoinfocus.org. Be sure to leave us a review here, share the word about this podcast. We hope that uh, this is a nice, useful way to take content with you uh, wherever you go, and you can listen whenever you want to. And it's also a great place for us to bring you some of that extra content that we just don't have time for on our on-air show each week on New Mexico PBS. So we appreciate you listening very much. We'll be back with you again soon. And until then, stay safe, stay healthy.